0: Welcome to season three of the Myelin and Melanin podcast. I'm Dawn. And I'm Dana. We're just two black women sharing our musings
1: on life, MS, and everything in between.
0: You can always find us on the web at myelinandmelanin.com, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Myelin Melanin. You can also subscribe to us on YouTube. If you're
1: a fan of the podcast, please consider supporting us by becoming a patron through our Patreon. Patrons can gain exclusive access to bonus content, giveaways, chances to join us on the Myelin and Melanin Party Line, and more.
0: We'd like to thank our music producer, Shah Severe for providing our podcast music over the years. You can find him on Instagram at shaw.severe, and you can also find him on YouTube. Welcome to episode 55. This is a really heavy episode for us. Um, it's interesting for sure. However, it is, yeah. uh, it's is—it's a topic that a lot of us in the MS community get up in arms about, I would say, because diet, nutrition, um, body consciousness, all of that is um, a hot topic, I feel. Um, and I wanted to address something that I said towards the end of The episode this could be misconstrued um, and it's insensitive Um, I feel it's insensitive and I wanted to apologize Um, I understand that what this episode brought to me was a lot of triggers you know Um, and as you all will hear in the episode as it plays um, we talk about my story, some things that had happened. And then in previous podcasts, we talked about how I had to go see a doctor because they thought I was anorexic and had an eating disorder, et cetera, et cetera. Um, however, I just wanted to apologize because it sounded as if I was making a comparison. And that that's not the case. I was in my feelings and I own that I was in my feelings and wasn't conveying the proper message. Um, So, yeah.
1: Yes, this is a lot. It's a heavy topic. It's a heavy episode. And
0: yeah. Yeah, that's it.
1: So today we are joined by Anna Sweeney. Anna is a certified eating disorder registered dietitian and supervisor. She's a certified sports nutritionist, certified intuitive eating specialist, and the owner of Whole Life Nutrition. Anna is an expert in the treatment of individuals struggling with eating disorders, disordered eating, and emotional eating. She also lives with MS. Welcome to our podcast, Anna. It is so great to have you on and talk with you. Um, Your social media impact is so meaningful and important, and it really resonates with us especially your criticism of diet culture, which I'm sure we'll get to talking about um, later on in the conversation. So thank you so much for what you do.
2: Absolutely. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here.
1: Thank you. So you describe yourself as an anti-diet dietitian, which I absolutely love. Um, Can you explain a little bit about what that means? Sure.
2: So I am anti-diet culture and the, the constructs that suggests that there is one certain way that we are supposed to feed ourselves and that the mission on this planet is to be forever efforting to be smaller with quotes around it, healthier Mm -hmm. with quotes around it, whatever, Mm -hmm. and subscribe to the idea that there is one way to achieve wellness and health, I'm against prescribed messages that disconnect us from our body and our Mm -hmm. intrinsic body wisdom that is there when we first get onto the planet and gets all messed up when diet culture starts infiltrating our brains.
1: Yes. Yes. It reminds me a lot of Sonia Renee Taylor's um, messaging in um, The Body is Not an Apology. This whole idea, and specifically I'm thinking about about it in the context of ableism mm. um, because I totally relate a lot of what you talk about in your social media to, um, you know, ability as well. Yep. And yeah, there's so many similarities uh, as it relates to these messages that were fed about what a perfect body is supposed to be. Amen. So a Amen. tangent,
0: but yes. Sorry, Dawn. No, it's fine no, because you know we have these societal air quotes norms and we're supposed to eat a certain way we're supposed to fit into a size 0 or 2 and if you don't then you're somehow abnormal which is you right. know right. crazy to me mm-hmm. um instead of just eating what makes your body like feel good you know um So how did you, can I just ask before we even like get deeper, how did you get started into this um, profession and what sparked your interest? So actually my, my younger sister, I was diagnosed with MS when I was 15 and my
2: younger sister um, was, was 13 when I was diagnosed in the time, probably between age 15 to 17 ish. My parents really, really, really devoted Mm -hmm. all of their attention to me. Um, because they were, you know, worried about MS. It's a really big diagnosis for a little child. Um, and in that time, my sister, in kind of the period of time where she just became invisible, right. and I see this happen in eating disorders a lot, um, like kind of well-child guilt um, and and other things. Katie actually went on to develop an eating disorder. And I, my original life dream was to be a sports broadcasting journalist. Really? Um, Like one of those people on a football field interviewing. Right. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Then I stopped being able to wear high heels and I came home Mm -hmm. and I, I was met with a sister that I I literally didn't recognize. And so I dedicated my, my career to specifically
0: eating disorder nutrition. That was, that was my game. That's so fascinating. Wow. Um, so can I ask how many years has it been since you were diagnosed? So I'm 34 years
2: old. So ooh, we're coming up on the big two oh. Um, but I was twelve when this when this started. So we I mean it's been more it's been more than two decades that I've had a demyelinating relationship.
1: Um side note, not to get wow. all off on a tangent, but um when you were diagnosed with MS at twelve, did they well, I'm sorry, 15. Um, Did they know it was MS right away?
2: So they did because I, and I remember this very specifically, I was at Children's Hospital in Boston and they took me and my family into a library. So like a room with books right. everywhere. And they said that I had these beautiful bright spots in my brain that were illuminating, but I also had scar tissue from a previous flare. And so they were really rapid to diagnose. Okay. Um, because it was, it was clear that there, this was my second demyelinating experience. Okay. Wow.
0: Did they put you on a uh, disease modifying, a disease modifying therapy immediately or? Yes. No. So I, was, I went on Avonex okay. right away, um, or
2: eh, relatively right mm. away. Um, and I stayed on, I mean, and we can talk about drug stru- stories as you wish, but, um, I started on Avonex
0: pretty quickly. Okay. Mm. Okay. Yeah. That was my first drug and the same as Dana. (laughs) Yeah. We hated Apodex. We were non-compliant patients. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. Wow. I
1: was was
2: super compliant because my mom was giving me shots, but it was not a pleasant
0: drug. No, no, not at all. And so I want to talk about this eating and the eating disorder thoughts and uh, the whole just everything about it because I had an experience and I'll share with you after I ask my question, what happened to me and I am just really elated that we have you on because I've been trying to get to the bottom of this and it's taken me years to to figure it out. But, you know, eating disorders, it's, it's a loaded term. So can you Mm -hmm. discuss what that term actually means? Sure.
2: So eating disorders are actually diagnosed conditions. These are mm-hmm. the actually, the, so the, this is, includes anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder, OSFED, ARFID, PICA, um, and I think newly, although orthorexia is not a diagnose, like, diagnostic term, um, it is certainly mm-hmm. something that we are seeing in the mainstream in, in big, big, big ways
0: wellness culture made that happen. Ah, so I'll tell you all a, a quick story and we've talked about it on the podcast um, before, but I'll just kind of refresh everybody's memories and, and then tell you this story. When I was seeing my neurologist on just a regular, um, you know, visit back in 2015, this was pre Trotta because my last drug of choice was the And, my doctor came in and I was like in the middle of deciding whether or not I was going to continue on to Sabri or just completely go off. And so she walked in the office or in the room and she looked at me kind of like with tears in her eyes and she was like, I think you have an eating disorder. And I said, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. She was like, you're so thin and I don't know how to help you. And she, and she almost like got angry with me and she said, you need to eat. And I said, I do eat. I love eating. What are you talking about? She was like, you look sick. And this has nothing to do with MS. And she said that, I think what your problem is, is that you want to control things. And the fact that you can't control mm-hmm. your MS is interfering with how you are eating. And I, mm-hmm. I fought her with, with what she was telling me. So they sent me to um, a psychiatrist, and then a psychologist. And I wound up going to this um, eating disorder center, I had to do an intake, Mm -hmm. I sat at a computer Took you know, they asked me all these questions. And then I ended up my mother came with me, and I ended up going into a room talking to the psychologist. And he was like, tell me all about Everything you know, and I said, and I boohooed and crying, and I'm like, "Well, MS has taken over my life. I don't know what to do." And he was like, "Okay, we'll talk about your eating." And I said, "Well, I'm a vegan. Well, are you a vegan by choice, or are you um, do you do it because of other reasons? What you know, because of animals, you know, cruelty, things like that?" I said, "No, I don't like the way meat and cheese or dairy makes me feel. So I opted to uh, be a vegan in 2000." and my life changed and i like how i eat i like how it makes me feel and so my but 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 everybody the whole medical team they were like yeah but it's not working for you and i was angry and mm-hmm. so what, what mm-hmm. i was left with was is this a control issue and they diagnosed me i guess with anorexia they told me i have anorexia and i said i don't have anorexia i love to eat and they said no it has nothing to do mm-hmm. with Eat, loving to eat or not wanting to eat it has to do with control so that's kind of like what I would love to talk to you about and like what is this <laughs> what off is
1: of what don was saying like does like when we're talking about chronic illness m s specifically can loss of control in that area er- in any area of one's life lead to disordered eating
2: no Right. Does it interfere? 100 million percent. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. And and so thinking about the, and there are many, many, many precursors that lead people to developing um, reliance on a sense of control. I'm saying that with Uh air quotes around food, when life is chaotic, when life feels out of one's control, There is something to be said for having the autonomy and the ability to exert, again, quotes around this, because if you are in the midst of an eating disorder, it's not actually about control. It's about an eating disorder controlling you. But in the context of struggle, it makes sense that someone is more um, at risk for development of disordered eating. And one of the reasons why I'm so happy to be speaking to you guys today is because my I think I'm kind of reviving a passion for the, like the vulnerability of humans living with chronic illness mm-hmm. in the context of wellness culture. Mm-hmm. It is very, very, very challenging to be a person who lives with a chronic illness. And then Dr. Google is telling you to do X, yes. Y, and Z. Um, and a lot of us are desperate. And I, I can certainly speak to my adventures with like the walls protocol. Right. Um, there are, extraordinary measures that people are going to go to, to feel better with the false sense that we have the ability to cure ourselves. So in the context of um, development of an eating disorder, certainly development with an, of an, like another condition can certainly lead to the development of an eating disorder. I, I can't speak to you specifically. Um, and if you feel well and your body is healthy and you are a healthy vegan and you supplement with B12 and like all is good. Awesome. Right. I have no judgment and I have no ability to speak to whether or not that it's, is a diagnosable disorder or not. And I will say um, like, ch- like props to your neuro team for having the wherewithal to say a thing to you about that. Mm-hmm. Um, because I don't think a lot of neurologists would necessarily like speak to that concern. Mm -hmm. And I don't necessarily, I mean, I certainly can't say that that means that you have an eating disorder. So, Right. And I I don't think
0: that. Well, the thing is I became, okay. I was diagnosed in 2000 and I started having, you know, problems and all kinds of symptoms in like 98, 99, but officially diagnosed in 2000. I mm-hmm. was a vegetarian at age nine by choice, and it wasn't because it, you know, I it just it was just because of how it made me feel. So in two thousand, when I was diagnosed, I just automatically felt like, okay, I'm just really gonna eat healthy. It it never dawned on me to say, oh, I'm going to cure myself. So that's why I had a hard time with this whole like diagnosis and like, oh, you're trying to control things. Maybe I was eventually like years later, but initially the, the my choice of becoming vegan wasn't um, because I was trying to control, number one, and it wasn't because I thought I would cure it because I always knew, yes, I have MS and it's not going anywhere. I, I knew that I could help to manage my symptoms. Um, But I never thought that. So I didn't feel like I fit in this category when I was speaking with these, you know, therapists. Um, And I did take B12 and I still do. Um, I was doing B12 shots, but now I do the supplements. Um, And, and I feel like I I'm balanced, but I used, I still to this day, get into arguments with people all the time about how I eat and what, how I live. And I'm like, what it's my, it's just, It just makes me feel better. I don't, I don't, I'm sorry. I don't think that that's
2: actually, I mean, you have to be a particular human to be able to actually serve as a diagnostician. Um, And so I appreciate that you went to an eating disorder clinic and and obtained an official diagnosis, but nothing that you're saying to me, and I I am not a diagnostician myself as as a dietitian. I can't diagnose. But it, what you're describing does not sound like an eating disorder mm-hmm.
0: to me. Yeah, and I, you know, again, like I said, I. It sounds like you have dietary. Right, and it's a preference because, like, if I feel like eating yogurt, okay, I'm going to eat some yogurt. Like it's not a big deal to me, but mainly I'm plant based, so yeah. I, that thank you for listening mm-hmm. to that. You know, okay. um, I just needed to get that out. <laughs> Yeah, so with with yeah, no worries. With all of that
1: said, though, you know you had um, alluded to the walls protocol, for example. I think yeah. that when you're living with a chronic illness, MS in particular, you're inundated with so much oh information, God, yes. conflicting information. I'm just looking at a lot of these quote unquote MS diets. Uh, many of them are completely different from each other. There's no one way that, uh, there's no one universal miracle cure. You know right. what I mean? Like when it comes to these miracle no, cure, they're, and they're no cure. Well, right, exactly. But like, how do you even, you know, how would one even navigate through that? It's, it, it's a mess. And so when thinking about this, it's almost like, how can, one not develop disordered eating, attempting to navigate through so, all of this madness.
2: So uh, this, this, is, this is where I believe that intuitive eating is actually part of what will save all of us mm-hmm. from from the madness. And intuitive eating is a 10 principle based concept. It's about rejecting the diet mentality. It's about feeling fullness. It's about literally getting in touch with our bodies and coming to know what leaves us feeling like the best versions of ourselves. Mm -hmm. So if being primarily vegan leaves you feeling well, Mm -hmm. that's wonderful. And I imagine if someone is telling you that you need to challenge that and eat chicken or beef or whatever, that doesn't feel good. So equally, when I was on the Walls Protocol, Miraculously, I know you will be. We will both be shocked. I still had MS. I didn't right. cure myself of MS. I felt super. I felt super guilty mm-hmm. for quote not oh. doing it well enough. Yes, and, and I have I have a million. I have a million issues with Terry Walls right. or not not her herself right. whatever, um. But but the protocol because it is so privileged and there are so many extraordinary expectations mm-hmm. that like for for a doctor to write a book and say on the cover of it how I healed myself of progressive ms, that is blasphemous yeah. because that 's actually not a thing you can't you can't i find you can't actually do misleading. that um, and so in my opinion it 's one thousand percent misleading and in my opinion the the best thing that we can do is find things that make us feel good and so that means eating foods that we're familiar with. I, I don't know actually where you guys are based. um, But so I'm from South Dakota. Originally, I live in Massachusetts now, but like local cuisine, if that's a part of your life or your family's meals are a part of your life. And I'm telling you now stop doing it because you'll cure your disease. I'm disconnecting you from a part of your life and your existence. That's the last thing that I want to do. And if I'm telling you that you need to eat every several hours or I'm telling you that you need to disregard cues for hunger or fullness or whatever, um, I'm further further disconnecting you from your body. And chronic illnesses do that enough. What we need as humans living with chronic illness is permission to go inside, to check out what feels good And to listen and honor whatever the hell that is. And it's different
0: for everyone. Yes, Yes. I love that. It does. It disconnects you from your body. So why put yourself under this undue pressure and stress of following a protocol or some sort of diet? Just, I love this. Like, just eat intuitively. Just eat what makes you feel good and what makes your body dance, I guess. Mm. (laughs) You know, I mean... And it's obviously different if you if you have an
2: allergy if something right. literally makes you physically sick. Let's not do those things. But outside of that, what we're he- hearing about with like these low auto, like these low AIP foods or these like pro-inflammatory mm-hmm. things, it's important. Inflammation in our bodies is important. Is right. actually our bodies keeping us healthy? Right. Um, and if you're if you're allergic to a food, so if someone has celiac disease, for example, and they eat gluten, they're going to have a very, very large autoimmune response after eating gluten. But if you don't have a condition that makes it so you can't ingest gluten, there's no reason why wellness culture has decided that gluten is the devil. And like more lately, it's not even so much gluten is the devil. Now it's being replaced by like, uh, it's just
0: uh, uh, wellness culture just makes me psycho. <laughs> sorry. Well, you know, you said something that uh, struck a nerve, oh, no pun intended, that Dana and I were talking about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah pun intended now. <laughs> um, you said privilege. That's a really, that's a really funny thing. <laughs> you said that um, this protocol, it was so privileged. And do you find that certain, that particular diets for, I would say, let, let's just, since we're on the protocol, do you find that Well, no, we'll just say particular diets. Do you find that they promote some sort of privilege? Like you have to be at a certain socioeconomic base to, you know, afford these elaborate meals and, you know, I I don't know. Yes. Well, 100%. And so Terry
2: Wall is saying have, and I'm not going to speak, I don't need to speak specifically to what she is asking for, but the things like to be able to follow the walls protocol is actually it's a very costly um and time intensive thing to do and if someone and that that implies that someone has financial privilege it means that they have um scheduling Mm -hmm. privilege so they have time to batch cook a meal or make like dessert things for themselves whatever um, it means that there, they, there, is, there is tons of implied privilege. It means that this is not a person who's living in a food desert. Mm-hmm. It means that this is someone who has access to like, organic food or whatever. Um, and it's deeply troubling to me when we start talking about already living. Well, like, living with a chronic illness is mm-hmm. hard enough. Wellness culture makes it suck yes. more. That's, that's a problem. And it would be one thing if ubiquitously, like uniformly, everyone followed the walls protocol, for example, and everyone felt and got mm-hmm. better. That would be one thing, but that would, that would imply some cu- like curative effect. Right. And again, the three of us live with diseases without right. a cure. Right, right. And eating vegetables, like 80 cups of vegetables a day is not gonna change that.
0: Absolutely. Yes. Wow.
1: Um. The other day, well, not the other day, it was a couple weeks ago, um, you had posted something on um, Twitter and it really touched both Dawn and I. We, you know, had hours long conversation about this and I just want to read it. You had posted, mm-hmm. those with chronic conditions are chronically made to feel responsible for their, for their health outcomes. Sense of responsibility. Sense of responsibility leads to blame. Blame leads to shame. Shame is not good for anyone. Um, yes, period. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think that, and we've touched on this a bit, you know, throughout this conversation, but how do you think that this diet and wellness culture um, feeds into kind of the blame game um, when it comes to chronic illness and eating and food? I think it is screaming it's
2: screaming from the sidelines you can cure yourself if you do x Mm -hmm. y and z and here i am i've been a practicing dietitian for 11 years i have a master's degree in nutrition science and i eat with my clients like this is part of my part of my job is to eat with Mm -hmm. my clients and i made a decision to go on a dietary protocol that went against my values because i am an Mm anti-diet dietitian made it impossible for me to eat with my people and made it impossible for me. I couldn't go out to restaurants. Like it was not, it was not good Mm -hmm. for me. It was the first time in my life that I was ever not an intuitive eater. And I was to blame for it not working. Mm -hmm. This is the way that, that diet and wellness culture comes at people with chronic illness and it like uniformly suggests and actually it really breaks my heart. I think about the number of people that live with even humans that live with mm-hmm. cancer and have the belief that they are told that there are things that they can do to cure cancer. Yes. Um, that's I mean, it's just, this is impossibly challenging stuff. And there are mult because of the fact that MS is a multi-causal disease. There's more than one reason why people get mm-hmm. MS. It's stupid to suggest, so we're all going to get well the same yes. way, and it's the reason why there are a million different it, drugs, it, and yes, and a million is a exactly. of them exactly. Why
0: but, does one drug work for another and then the other doesn't work? You know, for example, Libtrata didn't work for Dana, but it worked for me, and so right. why would everybody think that the Walls protocol is going to work for them? It, 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 because that wouldn't work for me, it just Amen. wouldn't. As a vegan, it's not going to work. She's heavy into right. meat and things like that. You're right. Yes. You would hate it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You would hate it. But, but it's. You would hate it. And, you know, it's as if, though, you know, relating it back to blame. We get blamed for being sick. Like, maybe if you would have eaten better, if you would have eaten this food or not eaten that food, you'd probably be feeling better. Right. Like, Uh, not because I have MS and X, Y, and Z. It's, yeah, it's. Right. so toxic and dangerous
2: and it's it's so toxic and really thinking about like management of any sort of chronic disease stress management mm-hmm. like relaxation mm-hmm. techniques are more important for us than yes. almost anything else mm-hmm. and so if we start getting into the territory of saying like so now this is your problem and on top of your problem it's your job to fix it mm-hmm. and that fix it problem Costs you $200 a month. And if you don't do it right, it's still your problem. I'm going to blame this on you again. If we believe that that is reducing stress for folks who need to practice stress management, we are lying to ourselves.
1: Right. And,
0: And I think it's important for people who have MS to focus on something universal, like mindfulness or stress management versus a diet because that's just way too much pressure mm-hmm. and it's added more adding more stress to you and, and more stress. Yeah. And, yes. and that's the whole point. You don't right. want to be stressed because MS and stress, of course, we all know don't mix. So yeah. Right.
2: And the thing is if, if people have the, it's, it's within everybody's prerogative, if it's accessible to mm-hmm. you and you want to try a thing and it makes you feel better, I am so happy for you. Like that would, that would delight me to no end for Mm -hmm. people to find relief by way of a dietary mechanism. I know that 20 years into this disease, there is not a thing that I can eat or a thing that I won't eat that is going to affect the way that I Mm -hmm. feel from one day to another. Mm -hmm. And that's not the case for every human who lives with MS. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, right. Uh, I mean, MS, such an individualized disease what would make us think that one way of eating right. is gonna yeah be, be all i mean
0: yeah. like going back really quickly to the intuitive eating i even did like an experiment i was like okay do i really want to be vegan or do i just want to like do part-time vegan and then other foods sometimes i don't know so i said let me just try it out i'll test it, it has nothing to do with me thinking again that i'll cure ms but it was like about how it, it was always about how it made me feel. So I decided to eat salmon. I was like, okay, I'll eat fish. But again, it just didn't make me feel good. <laughs> I mean, I had a burger once and it just like I okay. regurgitated everywhere. I was like, this doesn't make me feel good. And I i know that that feeling would return if I tried to eat it again. And i I know that the way that I eat now, I plan it out pretty well like it doesn't stress me out I never have issues when I go to restaurants or even like a friend's house they'll say oh okay well I got this extra for you or whatever I'm like okay and I can have the sides or give me this and I can make something quickly myself I mean I'm always prepared and so it's never it's never an issue so I do I feel I follow the intuitive eating which I didn't know that that was a thing so this is I'm happy about that (laughs) Mm -hmm. but um but yeah yeah, no, it sounds yeah. like very connected. And I, I do hope that people like look for other methods of trying to control an unpredictable illness. <laughs> you know, like like we were talking about with meditation or yoga. Yeah, other than oh, eat a kale salad, right? So, right. Eat some grass.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Anna, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about H-A-E-S, so the health at every size. I am fascinated by the movement. Yeah, if you could just talk a little bit about that.
2: Oh, yes. So health at every size is a social justice movement that is about respecting humans that live in all different body sizes. It is about access to appropriate care. It is about gentle nutrition. Moving bodies in ways that feel good, destigmatizing weight, separating weight from, um, uh, I'm just, sorry, my language okay. is not with me, but separating weight mm-hmm. from the way that we are actually taking care of folks. So, health at every size is a paradigm that I practice with. So, in my office, I am not going to make any assumptions about a person's. Anything based on the body shape or size that they live in, mm-hmm. and I think that this is hopefully the movement, the direction in which healthcare will be moving, because weight-based discrimination is really, really significant. And I've even seen it mm-hmm. in the MS community. My neurology, I so I live with thin privilege, mm-hmm. and and by thin privilege, I mean unearned. I'm I'm a thin mm-hmm. person. My parents were thin. My grandparents are thin. I didn't do anything for this body. It's just, this is how it was made. And because of my thin privilege and my education, but because of my thin privilege, my neurologist, not my current neurologist, but my a previous neurologist came to me as a dietitian and, and asked me to speak to members, like other, other clients of hers who lived in larger bodies as though again, as though people who live with chronic illnesses and people who are far more disabled than I am have the ability to modify their weight in a way that is sustainable mm-hmm. and health promoting. Wow. I false, it's, yes. not, it's not, that's not real. And we, we know that 90, what is it? 95 to 98% of people who diet and, and quote, successfully lose weight will regain that weight and then some within five years mm-hmm. and weight cycling is far more yeah. dangerous than just right. living in a larger body. Wow.
1: Right. Wow. That's fascinating. And also, too, just thinking about the way that weight is dealt with in the medical community. I mean, there are so many people that I know um, who won't go to the doctor because they're afraid to get weighed. They withhold yep. care, knowing that they need to go get Checked out or whatever, but they're terrified of being weighed. Um, it's right. it's disgusting. It,
2: it is, and that and it's weight stigma. That's how weight stigma yes. shows up in healthcare, and it makes it so that people people don't get the care that they deserve because they are fr- frightened of being um, yeah. subject to prejudice and discrimination. That makes it so that they are not cared for the reason that they're going to the doctor. They're just given a lecture about losing half of their body right. size and that, that, you know, that has nothing to do with having a sore throat, right? It's, this is, this is weight stigma on a clinical level. And this, this is the reason why I'm a very proud Hayes provider mm-hmm. because it is the antidote to, and it's, uh, it's not quite the antidote, but it's mm-hmm. the attempt at the antidote. Right to weight stigma in healthcare, because weight stigma itself and experiencing weight-based discrimination is, is, is dangerous and it actually does physiological mm. damage to a person wow. um, regardless of otherwise, other health conditions. So there's something called the allostatic load, mm. looking at cardiovascular function, looking at blood, um, blood sugar management, um, and stress management things that like it's a bigger it's a bigger study than this, mm-hmm. but what came out of the, this body of research was that people who experienced weight-based prejudice actually had the clinical presentations of of things that we generally associate with people who live in larger bodies, um, oh. separate from the separate from their actual like medical diagnosis with anything just related to the experience of living with discrimination
1: wow this
2: like this is this is physically.
0: Yes. Do, do you find that yes. it, wow. it runs on both ends of the spectrum being um i i'm as well a thinner person and i've just been that way my whole life and i find that i experience or i have experienced some of the, the similarities that people that i've spoken with that are, um, larger size that like, I'm like, wow, we're saying the same thing. So do you find that it's Mm -hmm. true that it goes on both ends?
1: So
2: I, I'm certainly that people, I think more so, um, I think there, there, there's discrimination that exists on both, on both ends. Sure. Um, and I obviously as a white woman, um, live in, in a, like I'm I'm a small white woman mm. and I'm wondering if in, in different communities there are different standards mm-hmm. kind of that are upheld as as normal mm-hmm. um and that that being said of course discrimination discrimination happens all right. over the place um and it's and I think it is uniformly probably harder to be in a larger body than it is to be in a smaller body just because we can buy clothes and we can sit in airplane seats and we can go to movies and not worry yes. about sitting in chairs and things like that.
1: I was just going to say that as I was hearing you um, say that, Dawn, um, just thinking about it in the context of, you know, a white person, for example, saying, well, I mean, I, um, you know, people are racist towards me, too. Well, no. You know, you face discrimination, <laughs> too. This is but, right. This is Anna. This is Anna. <laughs> that's, that's bullshit. Yeah. That's, bullshit. Yeah. That's, that's not yeah. a thing. Exactly. So, of course, I'm like, right. Like, not me. right. So, of course, everyone experiences discrimination. But on mm-hmm. a systemic mm-hmm. level, you know, fat phobia is yeah. a thing. Like, I don't know if I would say thin phobia mm-hmm. is like a, not that it doesn't happen, but well, cultural, a it, cultural, yeah. Thing.
0: I don't know. Well, anyway. I mean, Sorry. I I can yeah. yes, I can agree with that. Um, I don't know, I'm on the
1: fence.
0: Um, yeah, I'm I'm on the fence with it, but I I'm more so leaning that yeah, I can understand what you're saying about it being cultural.
1: But but don't. Like I'm getting way into getting way into a like heavier topic, but that's like the same thing as a man saying, "Well, I was discriminated against. So whatever, you're a man. Mm-hmm. We live in a man's world. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, and and I'm like qu- using air quotes when I say a man's world. We don't, um, like, there's no such thing as no. You're fat right. Privilege. I would argue. You're right. I don't know. That's a true statement. I mean, there is no true fat statement. privilege. But there is thin, pri- and I'm not suggesting that any sort of discrimination is acceptable mm-hmm. or good or you know. But yeah, fat fat privilege doesn't exist. Right. As a person who lives in a larger body, I can definitely well, attest to that,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and
1: who's lived in both bodies. So anyway, so, <laughs>
0: I'm getting way off topic. Here. No, I mean, well, I, I I get it. I see. I I understand what you're saying. I totally – and I. I respect that for sure. I think there's also people looking, I don't know. I I think sometimes people look at the thinner groups, I should say, and they're like, oh, are you sick? What's wrong with you? You know what I mean? Like, so you get those type of, you know. Yeah. This is a deep conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> Heavy. Um, where yeah. can people find you on social media Anna
2: oh absolutely I am at dietitian Anna on Instagram and Twitter but Instagram is my um my favorite place
1: this has been an enlightening conversation yes. can I give
2: myself can I give one more shout oh yeah definitely for, for your followers yes. your listeners if you have folks that are um disabled and or differently abled and or unable to access nature um, or want to access nature. One of the things that I feel most excited about on Instagram is actually my collection of inaccessible views. So at this point I have almost 300 pictures and videos of places that are effectively inaccessible if someone is disabled. Um, and these are pictures and videos of places in nature and otherwise all over the world. Um, these these have been viewed by over ten thousand people. Wow. I would really invite you and invite your listeners to check that out if you want to take a tour around the planet. Yeah. It's one of it's truly um, the one of the I'd most exciting that. things about
1: Instagram for me. Yeah, wow, that is really cool. So is it? Um, on your Instagram uh, page? They're
0: saved as highlights. Oh, okay. Yep. Perfect.
1: yep. They're saved as Perfect. highlights. Right. Yep. Thank you for that. So,
0: yes, listeners, please follow oh, Dietitian Anna. Yes. <laughs> she is amazing. She is. And if you don't already follow
1: her, you'll be, you know, stalking her page for hours. Pleasantly. Yes, yes
0: exactly. Yes, <laughs> Like,
2: Please do. and say hi I'm, I'm actually pretty good at responding to messages so say hi
0: yes please do. thank you guys
2: so much I appreciate
1: it thank you so much absolutely thanks for tuning in to the
0: myelin and melanin podcast you can always find us on the web at myelinandmelanin.com instagram facebook and twitter at myelin melanin you can always subscribe to us on youtube
1: And don't forget to leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we will talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.